Hey guys, good evening and welcome to the podcast, episode 26. It is Wednesday, August 26th, 2020. So we've got some symmetry there, episode 26 on the 26th. So that worked out really well, uh, but not on purpose. Uh, but welcome back, guys. I uh, haven't had a chance to record in several days. Um, you know, a couple different ideas on what I wanted to address in this podcast, um, but they ended up being overtaken by a thought that I had on Monday, uh, just kind of driving around randomly. Um, something that occurred to me about the current economic environment um, and um, the question about all the money that the Federal Reserve has printed, where it's going, what it's affecting, things like that. So that's kind of what we're going to focus on today. In fact, this could be longer than the usual 20 to 30 minutes that I aim for because uh, I have to work through a couple different concepts and tie them all together. Uh, so apologize in advance if this is a bit lengthy episode. But before I do that, uh, one thing that I just wanted to say is uh, going into this weekend, I had noticed I had uh, a total number of plays on the podcast in like the high 230s. I think it was like 238, 239, uh, number of times that the, the various episodes have been played. And by Sunday night, it was like 271. So there were like 30 plus, 35-ish uh, podcast plays just between Friday and Sunday. So uh, either I found a lot of new audience members out there or somebody went to town and just played everything that I've got. And so I really, really appreciate that. Um, and, and, and really, you know, very much, uh, you know, very much appreciate uh, whoever was, uh, was doing that. So, um, so yeah, so thanks, guys. I mean, always, always appreciate the engagement and the, and the attention uh, to these episodes that I've created. So I wanted to get that out of the way first. Uh, but anyway, so what I wanted to cover today, it's going to tie together a few different things. And I'm, and I'm kind of thinking out loud here. I'm kind of uh, going through this um, sort of real time. Okay, so you guys, you know, kind of discover this, uh, this, this, this series of concepts with me. I've only had about 48 hours to think about it, but it involves uh, the notion um, that you know inflation uh, or expansion of the money supply that the Federal Reserve kind of actuates through its policy decisions, uh, or you know better known as quantitative easing. You know it kind of ties that concept together with another concept that I uh, covered in the podcast called "Buy, Borrow, Die," and that concept, of course, was you know, sort of addressing like how very wealthy people don't pay taxes and they can avoid, uh, they can avoid taxes altogether by just borrowing money against the gains on their assets. So, um, so I'm going to kind of bring those two concepts together. Um, but let me kind of first back up and talk about, uh, how I even kind of came to this topic in general, uh, where it even came from. And so basically, uh, you know, I was in the car on Monday, passed a gas station. And um, when I passed the gas station, I noticed that the 87 grade gas, you know, the, the, the cheapest gas was like $2.05. You know, something ridiculously, you know, inexpensive uh, compared to where gas prices have been at other times in, in, in my lifetime, at least, um, you know, in terms of... Um, uh, you know, hitting like the $4 mark or almost getting up to $5 or whatnot. So, you know, obviously seeing gas at 
$2.05 is pretty, pretty cheap, right? So, uh, you know, I saw this price and I said, well, it's really strange. You know, um, one of the reasons that people often attribute uh, high gas prices to is the greediness of oil companies, you know, just gouging customers, um, you know, charging them whatever they feel like uh, to, to an unreasonable degree, you know, to make more money off of gas. And so, of course, you know, my thought was, well, I guess they're not being greedy right now <laughs> because they're only charging $2.05. And so, you know, we can't, we can't attribute it to that. Right, we would have to say maybe they're being generous because <laughs> because they're letting us have their gas at a very inexpensive price point. Right, so this is the first thought I had. So then, as I thought about it, I was like, well, you know, the stranger thing here is the fact that um, there's been so much um, there's been so much money printed since the early part of the year, say like March time frame, when the Federal Reserve was kind of called upon to. Uh, ease the economic burden caused by the coronavirus pandemic and they started you know just printing just rafts of money I mean just trillions and trillions of dollars uh, were being uh, created out of thin air and you know one of the um, one, one of the items that can often be very sensitive to inflationary pressure you know the fact that the money supply is being expanded rapidly like that um, is, you know, any, any commodity that has to do with, uh, you know, a necessity like energy, you know, such as oil, gas, uh, you know, food, lodging, you know, those, those critical items that a person basically can't do without. I mean, you need a roof over your head, you need to eat food, you need to put gas in the car. Uh, those items can often be highly sensitive to inflation and are usually much higher uh, increases in price versus the average inflation rate. So if the average inflation rate is like two, three percent, you know, gas will be going up more than two to three percent. Uh, again, simply because it's a very sensitive uh, item to inflationary pressure. So, you know, when I saw the two hundred five, I was like, damn! I'm like, you know, we've had like ten trillion dollars or whatever the number is. I mean, that's not the right number, but you know, trillions of dollars printed in the last six months, and yet gas is actually historically low. And has not, you know, the needle hasn't moved. So that was kind of the second thought I had. So then as I pondered that, I was like, well, where did the inflation go? You know, where is the $10 trillion or so, whatever the real number is? I'm like, where did it end up? And of course, you know, my brain kind of switched back to um, the, the uh, reasoning that I've heard cited in various circles that just like the inflation from 2008-2009 quantitative easing when we went through the housing crash, that we didn't see a ton of inflationary pressure on consumer goods because the inflation kind of found its way into the stock market. Okay, and by when I say found its way into, I mean, that's obviously a very informal term. Um, but the, but the, the, the theory goes, to kind of explain this a little bit, the theory goes that as interest rates are lowered and money supply is expanded, and of course, you know, the Fed can, can, can quantitatively ease with a variety of tools, and two of those tools are to lower interest rates, you know, essentially now down to zero uh, as, the, as the, uh, the core interest rate uh, that banks queue off of. Um, and the other way, or a, an other way, is to uh, monetize, is to, excuse me, to purchase 
uh, treasury bonds and by purchasing treasury bonds sort of inject the economy with, you know, with funding, okay, through the purchase of those bonds. So the theory goes that as the Federal Reserve does this and it makes traditionally defensive investments like bonds, uh, savings, accounts, you know, like in a bank, uh, that, that pay interest rates of, you know, now minuscule amounts, uh, you know, certificates of deposit, any of those like really defensive safe investments that pay some kind of interest rate, as those interest rates are pushed down, you know, or lowered next to zero, well, what do investors do? They, they, they leave those investments. They, they, they shy away from them because they're not getting any yield. They're not getting any, any gain from putting their money there. So instead, they take the money and go to where yield is greater or there's a greater potential for yield, and that is often stocks. Okay, so they'll, they'll move money out of those safe investments, like I said, you know, CDs, bonds, etc., and they'll go over to the stock market and buy more stock. And when they do that, uh, they are then sort of bidding up the asset prices uh, in the stock market, meaning they're, they're making uh, companies' stock price go higher, and it's going higher not because the company's doing any better, not because the company's selling any better or performing any better, <laughs> okay, uh, it's just going up because the company happens to be the beneficiary of an influx of money that is kind of, you know, um, manipulated or, or artificially rerouted from defensive investments into more of a, what would be considered an offensive investment to go into, you know, a stock, particularly if the stock was like a growth stock, like a speculative, you know, uh, stock that, you know, was you know, not necessarily paying high dividends or, or had a high kind of value uh, assigned to it, but just something that was like, well, I think, you know, this company that's not performing very well is going to eventually explode and go to the moon, so I'm going to jump on board. You know, stocks like that that are, you know, traditionally referred to as growth stocks. Okay, so, so the money shifts over there and the market is pushed up in that manner. Okay, so that, that was the third thought I had. I was like, okay, you know, cheap gas, non-greedy oil companies, uh, you know, no inflationary effects. Where is the inflation? Oh, yeah, the inflation's in the stock market, okay? So at that point, when I had that thought, I was like, well, you know, the, the people who really benefit the most from the money landing in the stock market like that are basically executives of those companies who own stock options, right? We're talking about, you know, very high-ranking members of the company who actually are invested in the company. In fact, part of their compensation, in fact, the majority of their compensation may be derived from owning shares of stock in that company, okay, rather than, you know, being paid a salary, which, of course, gets taxed mercilessly on a W-2, you know, or even being paid out a dividend that, you know, you know maybe escapes uh, self-employment tax but still gets taxed at, the, at whatever tax bracket that individual is in, and most likely that would be the highest tax bracket uh, if you're paying a salary or a, a dividend to an executive. Um, so, so, you know, from an executive standpoint, I mean, why bother taking a salary or getting dividends and getting taxed on it 
when you can grow your wealth in a tax-sheltered sort of way um, and just hold the stock options to an asset that's rising in value, right? Because, you know, on paper, your wealth is increasing. Just like, you know, it's like when you own a house and the house value is increasing on paper. Well, on paper, on your balance sheet, it looks like you're getting wealthier, right? So same idea for, you know, a like a Tim Cook at Apple, and this might not be the perfect example, I don't know Tim Cook's compensation structure, but let's just say he's, and I believe this is true, but let's say he just has a ton of Apple uh, stock that represents his um, compensation from the company. So as Apple continues to increase in value, Tim Cook's net worth increases in value subsequently, right? So, So of course, you know, as I thought about the stock market getting getting the benefit of inflation, I thought, okay, you know, well, who's you know who's coming out on the positive end of that the most? Uh, because really, anybody could benefit from that. I mean, if if you're just an everyday investor and you put money in the stock market and the stock market goes up, you're going to get you know your your stocks you know increase in value and you have higher net worth and you and you, if you sold those stocks, you'd make a gain. So anybody can benefit. I'm not trying to say that only you know, a rich executive would benefit. But if we're talking about scale, if we're talking about, you know, on the, on the largest scale, who benefits the most, it would be that top tier of very high net worth or ultra high net worth individuals who are deriving their wealth from stock options and shares of stock in the companies that they work for or, or are somehow affiliated with, okay? So as I thought about that, I was like, okay, you know, that's, that's great. You know, I mean, it is what it is, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, nothing we can do about it, obviously. I mean, in terms of the current system, that's how it works. If, if there's inflation, it's going to affect the stock market in that way, potentially. And these individuals are going to get wealthier. I mean, just, you know, it's a fact. Um, but what was the next thought I had, the thing that sort of clicked at that point is I brought in this concept of buy, borrow, die, and married that up to this thread that I was kind of going through mentally. And if you haven't listened to my episode on buy, borrow, die, I'll give you a little 101 summary of it here, but I really encourage you to listen to it because it's, I mean, it's, if you're just, if you're just neutral on this subject, it's just kind of a fascinating look at how wealthy people just kind of easily avoid paying taxes. I mean, it's not even, it's not even funny how easy it is for them to do it. And then it, it's kind of jarring when you hear, let's say, politicians talk about taxing the rich, and you realize that the, the rich don't need to be taxed because, because they have this mechanism called buy, borrow, die at their disposal. Uh, now, of course, if you're against it, you know, you'd be enraged uh, by, by this concept, and you would just be you know, flabbergasted that such a thing is even possible. Uh, but, but, but let's kind of fall back for a minute and talk about that concept, and then I'm going to roll that back into this whole thread on the gas prices and the inflation in the stock market, okay? So buy, borrow, die basically means this, and we'll walk through it linearly. A wealthy person buys an asset or assets, and of course, when I say buys an asset, I don't mean like one rental property somewhere. I mean, I'm talking about a vast sum of money is, is put into some kind of asset, in particular ones that don't necessarily produce cash flow, like stocks, for example, that aren't paying dividends, they're just representing, uh, you know, uh, that, that may just, you know, represent speculative growth possibilities or whatnot. 
Um, or, you know, it could, could be other types of assets. I mean, that's just one example that ties back to what we're discussing in this podcast. Um, but, you know, that's the first part is to buy an asset. Okay. So now the money is, is, is sunk into the asset, right? The asset presumably appreciates in value over time. Okay. You know, whether on an annual basis or, I mean, whatever unit of measure you use, as time goes by, the asset appreciates. Now, you know, if it's, if it's real estate properties, you know, if you look at any 40-year period in real estate, I mean, you know, it's always going up. I mean, you can use shorter periods than that, and it's almost always going up. You just have little blips in time where it falls back a little bit and then eventually recovers. Uh, the stock market over long periods of time obviously has continued to go up, although it has greater susceptibility to shock waves and, and severe dips and having to sort of restart uh, from a lower value uh, than, let's say, the real estate uh, market. But, you know, in just a very general sense, without getting too technical, when, when the wealthy person in question here in this example buys an asset, the expectation is that that asset is increasing or inclining over time in value, right? So then you go to step two, which is borrow. Then go to the bank and say, okay, Mr. Bank, I have you know, $50 million in asset X, uh, that $50 million is now worth $53 million. So I want to borrow $3 million. Okay. Or some number between zero and $3 million. Okay. So, so the gain on the asset is borrowed against. Okay. Just going to wait for that to pass by. Okay, so timing is always perfect. <laughs> always managed to hit one of those big delivery uh, delivery trucks coming by. So anyway, guys, apologize for that. But the point is, um, there's a there's a a phase here, second phase, where the wealthy person borrows against the gain on the asset they bought in step one. Okay, and the bank is willing to issue this loan because they see. The collective net worth of this wealthy person, it, you know, would be fairly high. Uh, they realize that there is a, a a large asset base available to that person. So let's say let's say something goes wrong with the three million dollar loan. Well, the person had fifty million dollars to begin with, so they can easily pay back the loan or collateralize it, you know, and, and get back the bank can get back their money and that sort of thing. So it's a very safe investment, you know, to lend three million dollars to somebody worth fifty million dollars. Okay, so they're like, okay, here's your loan for $3 million. So the wealthy person lives off the $3 million tax-free because the loan is not income. The loan is not a reportable source of income that the IRS has dominion over, right? So there's no tax paid on it. It's literally $3 million of net cash in the pocket of the wealthy person. So that wealthy person does not need to sell any of their assets for cash. They do not need to draw a salary on a W-2, and they don't need to take a dividend from the asset uh, uh, you know, that, that, that could potentially you know, pay them outright that way. They don't need to take that kind of payment. They simply get the loan, live off the loan, don't pay any tax on it. The asset continues to appreciate. They go back to the bank uh, somewhere down the road uh, you know, in, in the near future, get a new loan for a higher amount of money, pay off whatever's left on the old loan, and restart, you know, and restart the clock. 
until step three, they die. Okay, now when the person dies, this wealthy person dies and passes on, they then pass over the estate, right? Let's say the 50 million, which is now appreciated over time to whatever number, let's say it's now 100 million, okay? They pass the 100 million on to their children, you know, just using that as an example. Pass the 100 million on to their children who take the asset at the present day market value. So the asset appreciated from 50 to 100 million, but that $50 million gain is never taxed because when the children take possession, they take it at 100 million, not the original $50 million figure. Okay? So it's buy, borrow, die. Now the children have a $100 million asset to work with. They go to the bank. They take out a loan for you know five million, ten million, whatever the gain on that hundred million is, and they start the process all over again. Okay, so they they have the asset, they borrow against it, they die, they pass it on to the grandchildren of the original wealthy person, and so on and so forth. It continues. Okay, so that is buy, borrow, die. Now again, you know, I have a whole episode that's you know forty-five minutes or so really kind of examines the whole thing and peels it back a little bit further. But for the sake of this podcast, that's, that's the situation. That's what, you know, that's, that's how this thing works, okay? And it's just reality. I mean, it's, it's what's happening right now in America with wealthy people. I mean, if you're wealthy and you're not doing bar, borrow, die, then you're either getting really bad advice or you're just charitable and you feel like giving money to the U.S. government because you, because you feel like it. Okay, when you can easily avoid it. Okay, so anyway, so that's buy, borrow, die. Now, when I had this whole thread on the gas prices and the inflation and the stock market and the executives with their stock options, I said, wait a second. If you're a, a very wealthy executive, and we're using Tim Cook as an example here, then you really love seeing inflation make its way into the stock market because if the cornerstone of your wealth Okay, if the cornerstone of your wealth is stock options, right, shares of stock in the company you are affiliated with, then the best way to reap gains on that asset from a tax advantage perspective is to have that asset driven up as high as it can get from whatever source it happens to be. You don't even care what source it happens to be. You don't care if the asset price, the stock price goes up from performance of the company or inflation. Who cares? The bottom line is, on paper, you're wealthier, right? You went from being worth 50 million to 70 million or 80 million or 90 million or whatever, right? And so at that point, you can go to the bank and show a very healthy appreciation in your stock options and say, hey, Mr. Bank, uh, you know, last year I was worth $50 million based on my shares of stock in company A. Um, but now company A is worth, you know, X amount of dollars, you know, it's gone up in, in value X amount, you know, totally driven by inflation, but nobody cares about that. That's not part of the conversation. It's just, hey, you know, company A appreciated in value by a substantial sum of money, so now I, you know, Mr. Executive, want to borrow against that gain. Okay, that substantial gain, right? So just a couple examples of how that could work in, in real uh, scenarios. 
and, and I'm not going to get the numbers right here, guys. It's going to be kind of a little off base, actually. Uh, but I'm just going to throw some things out there. Um, I think I read recently that, like, Tesla was trading at, like, a couple hundred dollars a share, like, this time last year. Like, if you go back to summer 2019, Tesla was, like, two or three hundred bucks a share. Something like that. But now, a year later, Tesla's trading at, like, a few thousand dollars a share. Like, it's literally gone up ten times. It's literally gone up 1,000%. And in that year, it hasn't necessarily performed any better. It hasn't necessarily accomplished anything from a financial growth perspective. If anything, it's suffered losses. Because I believe, if I'm connecting the dots here correctly, that when, um, when Tesla... Well, well, I mean, I'm kind of combining two things here as far as Tesla and SpaceX go. But, but the owner of both of those companies, Elon Musk, you know, was, was, was kind of gambling on SpaceX with the, with the space launch and, you know, sending up the astronauts into space and returning the booster rocket and all that. You know, there were probably substantial losses being taken there. Okay. And meanwhile, you know, Tesla on the flip side wasn't necessarily doing anything differently either, I think. I mean, obviously they didn't probably suffer those kind of losses that SpaceX did uh, to launch a rocket into space, but they didn't necessarily perform over the moon either, okay? So I may have kind of mixed those metaphors a little bit, but the point is, you know, Elon Musk is the commonality there. But Elon Musk can go to his, his Tesla stock, you know, take that to the bank and say, hey, look, I'm now worth, you know, the, the ownership interest that I have in Tesla has gone up 10 times. So I want to take a loan against some portion of that gain. Okay, so he goes to the bank, borrows that amount of money, lives tax-free, you know, waits for Tesla to keep going up and repeats the process, right? So that would be kind of a real-world example of someone who a lot of people know, I mean, he's a fairly popular guy, uh, could benefit from this process, right? So, you know, the real point here, and getting close to the 30-minute mark, so this, this might not be as long a podcast as I thought it would be, but, but the notion here is that when inflation is, is, is occurring, when the money supply is expanding, and that expanded money supply is sort of finding its way into the stock market and into asset prices, it is then benefiting the people at the very top of the food chain the most because they have the deepest, most vested, most significantly and large-scale interest in those companies, right? Those executives, those shareholders, those very large shareholders of those companies that are then riding that inflationary wave right into the BBD, buy, borrow, die concept, which allows them to borrow at greater and greater amounts of money that is then covered on the back end by these rapidly increasing or rapidly accelerating asset prices uh, that sort of bolster uh, that borrowing. Okay, so, you know, as I, as I pondered this, and we kind of get into the last phase of the discussion here, I thought, you know, I wonder if this is done on purpose, right? Now, this could totally be coincidental. I mean, it could just be like, hey, you know, wealthy people do great with buy, borrow, die. It just so happens the stock market is getting pumped up artificially for the last 10, 12 years. And so they've really raked in the dough from buy, borrow, die way better than any other time uh, that they've, you know, employed that approach. Uh, so it's a really great time to be doing buy, borrow, die uh, since about 2008, 
And I just thought, okay, you know, that could be completely coincidental, completely, you know, just, just so happened to work out that way. But another part of me asked, you know, is there something deliberate about it? Is there something coordinated about it? Where as the Federal Reserve expands the money supply, it is doing so with some knowledge that the biggest beneficiary of that expansion as an entity is the stock market, but on an individual level, it's already wealthy people who are now able to borrow at greater and greater sums of money. And thus, by doing that, they can then deploy those borrowed funds to gobble up even more wealth, right? I mean, you know, if, if you're a wealthy person and you, you know, your wealth went from, you know, you went from being worth 100 million in 2019 to 200 million in 2020, and you go to a bank and say, hey, give me a $20 million loan against that $100 million gain, you know, you're, you're a fairly intelligent individual, most likely, when it comes to money. So you're not going to take the $20 million and just go blow it all. You know, you may spend a bunch of it just supporting your extravagant lifestyle. Let's assume you have one. Um, you know, so maybe you need $10 million to do that. But guess what you do with the other $10 million? You go buy more assets, right? You just keep growing and growing and growing that asset base so that when you go to the bank the next time, you can borrow even more money tax-free, right? So, so when you're in that position, you have that kind of wealth, I mean, you are deploying funds in a strategic manner, right? You're not just borrowing money from the bank and just blowing it on, you know, you know uh, yachts and supercars and mansions. I mean, you've got those things, but you're also, you know, you're also in the mindset of how do I continually grow this asset base so that I can keep borrowing, so I can keep this gig going, <laughs> right? So, so that's what happens here is you get this inflationary policy from the Fed. It benefits the stock market, which benefits the top tier of, of the wealthy, which then affords them the opportunity to borrow vaster sums of money. I, I think that's a word. <laughs> they can borrow you know, vaster sums of money to then buy more assets at an increased clip, at an increased rate. Okay, and then as they do that, the snowball continues rolling down the hill and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, all the while, our debt-based monetary system, I mean, that's what our entire system, uh, our entire economic system is based upon, is debt. Okay, uh, I mean, and, and this is not, you know, some wild theory I'm, I'm coming up with on the fly. I mean, you can actually read about it in a uh, pamphlet called um, Modern Money Mechanics that was published by either uh, the Federal Reserve or some ancillary organization related to the banking system. But the bottom line is modern money mechanics discusses uh, how banks use sort of a fractional reserve approach where they keep a little bit of money in the bank, but then they loan out the rest of it and they can multiply out uh, th those loans. As, as those loans hit other banks, then that bank can take a little bit of that money and loan out the rest of it. So I'll probably do a whole podcast on modern money mechanics. Uh, you know, it needs that treatment. But the bottom line is, you know, this is not some wild theory or hypothesis. This is, this is documented by these entities, that this is how they perform banking operations. It is fueled by the creation of more and more and more debt. So when you have an entire industry, an entire sector that lives off of the creation of debt, and, and that's how it makes its money because it collects interest off that debt, well, then it needs people to take out loans, right? It needs to 
it needs its product to be in demand. You know, I can go to a bank and take out, you know, a $20,000 personal loan or a $500,000 mortgage. I'm small potatoes. I mean, the interest that a bank is going to make off of me is minuscule compared to the interest a bank would make off of an extremely wealthy person who is taking out a loan for $10 million, $100 million, you know, you know, $300 million, whatever, right? So banks like making huge loans to very wealthy people because they know they're going to get paid back and they know they're going to make money in the interim off the interest, significant sums of money off the interest, okay? So, so bottom line is the banks benefit here, wealthy individuals benefit here, the stock market benefits here, which you would then think the average investor benefits from, but the problem is we all know that these cycles of boom and bust, are, they occur like clockwork, right? Every, every 10 years, we get a 100-year flood. <laughs> okay, so think about that for a second. <laughs> about every 10 years, we get a 100-year flood, and the market collapses. And at that point, wealthy individuals with cash, right, like we talked about before, with that, that cash that they've borrowed or cash they have on hand can then come back into the market, gobble up assets at very low valuations, while average investors are, are bailing out of those uh, assets uh, to avoid additional losses to, the, let's say, their 401k or their IRA or whatnot, and thus an, an, you know, a, a resultant impact to their retirement. Right? So, so the person at the, at the bottom of the pole okay, the, you know, the, uh, the average investor gets left holding the bag, okay, and is the, you know, is the last one in on the joke. So, so really, it's everybody above that person who's benefiting, who's sort of, you know, uh, looting the system, so to speak, you know, if you want to put it in negative terms, <laughs> which I think is fair, um, you know, those entities are benefiting all the way down the line until, boom, the person at the bottom, the average individual, is left with uh, really just you know, the remnants, you know, essentially a market collapse. So, so that was kind of the thread that I walked my way through, guys, when I saw this, uh, you know, this, this set of gas prices and, uh, you know, sort of put all this, you know, this series of thoughts together. Um, and at the urging of, <laughs> of one of my friends and colleagues, so shout out to Jason, um, I'm actually going to use a mob analogy here <laughs> to <laughs> describe what's probably happening kind of right before our eyes. Um, and, and I think, you know, obviously if you, if you accept this analogy, then you accept a very fatalistic view of the U.S. economy and the banking system and the debt-based monetary system that we have. I mean, some people, you know, who know about this stuff would say, who cares, you know, it's, it is what it is. You just got to ride the wave. While, while others would say, no, this is, this is absolutely terrifying and absolutely awful. Uh, that this is the way our system is set up. So if you fall in that second category, <laughs> you probably will like this analogy. Uh, but I'm sure you know many of you listening to this podcast, uh, I assume, have seen the movie Goodfellas. Um, and if you've seen the movie Goodfellas, you recall towards the beginning of the movie, uh, the uh, the captain and the uh, mob family, the Lucchese family there, Paul Vario, or Big Pauly, is uh, discussing um, potentially investing in or coming in as a partner with a gentleman who owns a restaurant, like a local restaurant there. And so that gentleman is saying, you know, hey, I got guys coming in the restaurant. They're messing with the restaurant. They're messing with me. I need your protection. I need your involvement. So Big Paulie at first tries to talk him out of it. Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, 
I don't know anything about the restaurant business. You know, I, I probably wouldn't be a very good partner. But the guy keeps begging. I'm like, no, I need you to come in, Paulie. Come on, Paulie. You got to help me out, Paulie. So at one point, Paulie actually looks at him and says, you know, if I'm your partner, it's not even fair. Because, of course, Paulie has so much power over this gentleman that he can arrange whatever, you know, whatever type of partnership he would like it to be. Uh, so, he, so he gives one last warning to the guy. The guy's, no, I, I want you to come in as a partner. He's like, okay, you know, fine. We're, we're in the restaurant business together. So, of course, what happens after that? So Big Paulie just starts stealing everything from the restaurant. I mean, just basically busts out the restaurant, you know, taking all the liquor and the, and the food and just, you know, deliveries come in the front door and the stuff goes out the back door. And, of course, it's resold at a profit or whatever. And so eventually the restaurant collapses and they just burn the whole thing down. <laughs> so basically, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an analogy. You know, and the guy who originally went into the partnership with Paulie's left scratching his head. Like, how did, how did everything go so wrong? So basically, that's probably a pretty good analogy for the U.S. economy and banking system and so forth, is you have this upper tier that's benefiting from the rules as they stand today, and they're essentially just busting out the joint, right? I mean, they're just, they're just emptying out uh, whatever wealth is, 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 uh, is bottled up, you know, you know in, in the country, in the market, you know, however you want to kind of look at it. Um, and they're and they're leveraging these these tools, you know, these these mechanisms that are you know in place that are legal, you know. I mean, the tax code, you know, the the, the banking system, the way it issues loans and so forth. There's nothing illegal here, but it's just using the existing mechanisms to enrich themselves uh, at ultimately the demise of the entire system. But you know, along the way, of course, if they're being smart with their money, they're protecting themselves against any future disaster. So the only people really getting affected and really getting hurt when this whole system collapses, uh, you know, is the average individual, you know, the average investor. So anyway, guys, that's, I think we're going to stop it here. I mean, we you know, kind of went through the whole progression there from the gas prices all the way down to the inflation, the buy, borrow, die. Um, you know, would really invite your thoughts, your feedback on this. I mean, you can you know, write me on Twitter at CJ Anastasio, uh, you know, on Facebook at Christopher Anastasio LLC. Uh, you know, would love to hear from you guys. I mean, you know, any, any outraged comments or, you know, other incisive remarks are welcome. Uh, but, you know, this is, this is kind of what we're dealing with. I mean, this is my hypothesis about what's happening here. I mean, I may be wrong, but I think, you know, when you connect these dots and you put this puzzle together, this is really what's, what's happening. And, of course, it knows no party affiliation. It knows no candidate. It knows no allegiance to anything but the raw, you know, consumption of, you know, dollar bills, you know, the raw uh, pursuit of greater and greater degrees of wealth. Uh, And that's something that we should all be at a bare minimum aware of. I mean, I'm not trying to influence how somebody perceives this, whether they think it's good or bad or neutral, but I think it's important to be aware of it and then be able to orient off of it and say, okay, this is you know, this is what's happening, so therefore I need to take actions X, Y, and Z. Okay, so anyway, guys, you know, definitely encourage you to check out some of the other podcasts where I talked about the Federal Reserve and the economy. I think I have a couple other sprinkled in there. I mean, the triplet of opacity episode, I really talk about the stock market and why I don't have anything to do with it anymore. Okay, this podcast kind of dovetails into that because the whole thing is just an artificially blown up bubble. Um, so all these podcasts kind of have a little thread through them. And then, of course, I have that one podcast about uh, Buy, Borrow, Die. I think it's episode 20-something 
uh, but you'll see it in the title. And like I said, that one goes into a lot more depth on this concept uh, of how wealthy people avoid paying taxes. Okay, so I think, you know, what I've presented here today, I mean, it kind of ties all this together and it kind of presents this as a cohesive picture. Um, and I'd be really curious if anybody has, uh, you know, uh, an affirmation of it or, or an alternate way of looking at it, uh, would certainly be welcome. So as always, guys, I really, really appreciate everybody uh, listening, checking in on podcasts, giving feedback. I mean, it's uh, very meaningful to me, so I really appreciate that, guys. Uh, but, uh, you know, try to check back in at least one more time this week. Uh, before the weekend comes uh, with another podcast. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, everybody, you know, hopefully enjoy this episode and uh, take care and uh, we'll talk to you real soon. All right. Bye-bye.